Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Olusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. How are you doing today? How is everyone doing? Are you excited about Audacity Conference 2022? Look, I have been dreaming, waking up, daydreaming, thinking about this day for the longest time, and I'm glad that we're here to make it happen, all right? So just right away, just let someone know in the comments that you're here, you're ready, you're excited, and you love them, and bring out your writing materials, bring out your Bibles, bring out everything you can bring out because this is going to be an explosive experience for you and also a very enlightening experience for you. All right, I just want to say this uh, just as a little bit of, uh, to prepare you and prepare you for what's to come. We're going to have uh, this conference for about three um, hours or three and a half hours, right? I know I've taken some of your time already. I'll try to be as quick as possible. But for some of you, this might be an information overload. It's like, oh my goodness, so much to, to talk about in so uh, little a time. And I understand this. Look, we can only achieve so much in a conference like this. We can't cover everything. I mean, I had a discipleship program where we did apologetics. Apologetics was one of the schemes. You know, there was soteriology, Christology, pneumatology, um, just then we got to apologetics and I was like, yeah, we'll just do it for maybe two, three weeks. We ended up spending how many, I think it was about three months. We spent doing just apologetics or four months. So it, it, it's rigorous. It's a lot because it covers everything. It covers all religions, all worldviews, and also the Christian worldview. And so this is just a push in the right direction. I want you to see it like that. See it as a push in the right direction. You can't learn everything that you want to learn right now uh, and learn everything. It's, it's to supplement what you know and help you go for more. Praise the name of Jesus. So can you promise me that for these three hours, we have your full attention? I promise you it's not going to be boring. It's going to be super exciting and not just intellectually stimulating. It's going to be spiritually enervating. Praise the name of Jesus. It's going to be spiritually um, invigorating. Is going to lift your spirit and and the lord told me this and this is why i want you to also be sensitive that he's raising from this conference men and women who will stand for his truth more than ever before he's going to stir up passions that you never even imagined would be stirred it's going to be activated today because you came around all right so if you know a friend that also registered right now is the right time to get them in here they can't afford to miss anything all right so pay attention, stay tuned, and let your heart be receptive. Can we just pray? Precious Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be in your presence. Thank you for the joy that is already beaming in our spirit because we get to learn more about you. We get to learn how to stand up for you in a generation that wants to put you down. Thank you, Lord, because you are kind and you are good and you've commissioned us to do this work. Thank you, Lord. We love you with all of our hearts. We pray that everything we discuss will find expression in our lives. We will be active doers of your word, not just hearers only, in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen, Amen. Glory to God. I want to, I want to congratulate you for making the, the wise decision to be here again. And I want to say a big thank you to you. We're going to go right away into the first session because of time. 
Um, we're going to pray towards the end, and we're also going to have a Q&A. The link will be put in the chat section. I'll also make sure that it's displayed on the screen as time goes on. But please know that you can ask questions, okay? And the way the questions work is that when you put in your questions, I think the platform is called Slido, you can vote the questions that you want the answers to. All right, so maybe you even see a question someone else asks and you're like, oh, I want to ask that kind of question too. You can vote it so that it comes way to the top and I, you know, I get to see the responses there as well, okay? So that's uh, just for you to know. We're gonna have three sessions um, and we start with the first session. Remember the theme of this conference. Maybe you must have seen the theme, right? <laughs> I believe that when you registered, you saw it. It's called Ray in the Gray. The theme is called Ray in the Gray. Ray in the Gray. And Ray in the Gray simply means, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but Ray in the Gray, uh, what we want to do in this teaching, this conference specifically, last year, Audacity Conference 2021, uh, we went more to talk about the proof and evidence of God's existence and more importantly, his character. How can you tell me God is good? How can you tell me God exists without quoting in the beginning God? How can I know from outside the Bible God exists? And we spent so much time doing that. If you, if you missed last year's one, I, I, I would encourage you to check out our podcast platforms um, and just check for it, right? Um, I, I think we also streamed on YouTube. So check YouTube, check Audacity Conference 2021. It's going to strengthen your faith, all right? It's going to help you understand for sure and see that God really does exist. We see his evidence everywhere. Um, but this year, we want to move from that. We're not going to go... I know many of you were expecting that. Maybe you wanted to see uh, if God really exists. You wanted to see those definitions, those proofs. But sadly, we're not going to go deep into that. We already did that last year. I want us to move. I want us to move every year. Um, by the grace of God, till he comes, we'll have conferences like this at least once in a year. Amen. Because this is something I'm super passionate about. And I think in a generation like we are, it's something that everyone needs to be passionate about. If you're in a ministry or in a church that doesn't emphasize training believers, training members to be able to stand up for their faith, you're not doing a good service to God's kingdom in this generation because the world is different. The world as we know it is a different world. It's evolved. It's changed. We're going back to how the days were in the times of Noah and we have a responsibility like Noah to be preachers of righteousness, but to also understand the culture and influence the culture, shape the culture for the glory of Christ. Amen. All right. But that said, we're going more into what we call gray areas. Gray areas are the things that are not so black and white. So if I say it's stealing wrong, yes, stealing is wrong. If I say is lying wrong, yes, lying is wrong. It seems black and white. Is killing wrong? murder you say yes but you know sometimes it, there's a gray area to this where if you kill someone in self-defense is that wrong they would have killed you if you didn't kill them and they were the ones who attacked you is that wrong that's a gray area do you understand if you if you kill because you're in the army and you're trying to serve your nation you're at war and you're protecting your nation like in the days of israel those guys killed their enemies is that wrong? So these are things that you sometimes when you get into them, you're not too sure. It's not so black and white all the time. And there are many more because in the culture that we live in, 
we've advanced in technology, right? We've gone so far, we've come so far, and things have changed. In, in the Bible days, you barely be able to hear a word like internet. You will not find internet in the Bible, right? Um, there, was, there were airlines anyways in the Bible, you know, air, airlines and everything, because Philip tele, you know, teleported from one place. Actually, the Bible is way ahead. There was teleportation already. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, you know that when you talk about things like abortion, when you talk about things like pornography, masturbation, when you talk about things like artificial insemination or plastic surgery or tattoos and piercings or, you know, some of these areas, they're a bit gray. You know, we, we are not exactly sure. What does God think about these things? These things didn't exist in biblical days. So what does God think about it? How are we believers supposed to live? And maybe you're a junkie, you're not a believer, but you're a junkie for morality. How are you supposed to live um, in, this, in this life, in this culture, being sure that you're doing the right thing? So this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to shine a, a, a ray of light in, in gray areas so that it's clearer for all to see what God's perspective is on these things. And yes, God has a perspective on these things. He has thoughts. He has desires. He has an opinion. He has a will concerning these matters. He's not silent about it. We can see what he said about every other thing. And despite innovation, we can still come to the conclusion that this is God's heart concerning this matter or that matter. Praise the name of Jesus. So are you ready? Are you excited about this? Praise the name of Jesus. All right. So, but uh, I'll be remiss to not give you uh, a proper, proper introduction to the concept called apologetics. That's what we're doing at Audacity Conference. While we're giving you the audacity to stand for the truth, standing for the truth, being able to defend what you believe, for sure, that's what apologetics is. And I'm going to give some introduction. Uh, those of you who follow the ministry, we already had that in the series, but I'll recap a couple of those things so that we're all on the same page. And from there, we just, we just take off. Amen. Glory to God. I want to just remind you there, here that at Vivify Ministries, we prioritize powerful simplicity. That's like our motto, especially our teaching ministry. It's powerful simplicity. We, we don't believe in making things too complex. So you say, ah, these people are deep. Ah, yeah, 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 deep. I think when you bring clarity to such a complex matter, that's when you're actually deep. That's when you actually understand. And in the words of Albert Einstein, if you cannot explain a concept to a six-year-old, you probably don't even understand it in the first place. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're going to break everything down, but in such a powerful, simplified way, so that everyone, whether you're five years old here listening or you're 60 years old, everyone can understand. Amen. Aren't you excited about that? All right, so let's go. What is apologetics? What is apologetics? I'm sorry, please. Forgive me. That's not apologetics. It's not apologizing. It is apologizing, but it's not apologizing. You know, when I always talk to people and say, I want to apologize on this matter, and like, you didn't offend me. I'm like, no, that's not the type of apology I'm talking about. So apolog uh, apologetics is from the Greek word apologia, 
which means to give a defense. It's literally what a lawyer will do when they have a client, they roll out the evidence and say, this is why my client is, is, is innocent. This is his alibi. This is his evidence. This is his track record. You cannot convict him. He is free. He is innocent of all charges. You defend logically, you defend with proofs and evidences. That is where we get the concept of apologetics from. So I'll give you this definition free of charge. I promise you, I'm not charging you for this. Very easy definition. Apologetics is the science and art of systematically defending one's beliefs. It is the science and art of systematically, and I want to encourage you to write down. I know that you always listen to the replay, but write it down. All right, write it down. It is the science and art of systematically defending one's beliefs through logical and reasoned arguments. Through logical and reasoned arguments with the aim of persuasion. And just so we are clear, apologetics is not just relegated to Christianity. You can be an Islamic apologist. apologist. You can be a Hindu um, apologist. You can, you can defend your belief, whatever it is. But what we're doing here today is, of course, Christian apologetics. Do you understand that? All right. And I said it's the science and the art of defending your belief. Science because it involves a systematic um, flow of teachings systematic doctrines it, it it comprises of you know the words the definitions the of the terms do you understand it's it's a science it's knowledge it's a knowledge base when we, when you talk about art art is more about the presentation and these two are not you can't replace one with the other honestly these two are not mutually exclusive they they are powerful together so let me give you an example, right? Let me give you an example. You might have all the proof, all the evidence about the fact. So imagine, and I, and I, and I wish I had time to talk about it. Um, but during the series, we've talked about how people have different reasons for why they doubt anything about Christianity or about God. They have reasons. It could be intellectual. It could be emotional. It could be spiritual, whatever it is. And then this person is hurt emotionally. This person has seen Shege in life. They've been disappointed by God, seemingly. And they're telling you, I don't believe God exists. I don't believe God exists. And you know, they've lost a lot of people in their lives. They've grieved. And then you come, you say, oh, my dear, relax, calm down, calm down. You see, uh, there's a teleological argument. Argument from design. God designed the universe. You can see it in his creation. There's a cosmological argument. You've missed the point. You've missed the point. You have not identified the source of that person's doubt. And so you will not be able to address it. Whether you are knowledgeable and you know all things in this world, you have failed to do apologetics. So science and art of apologetics are equally uh, important uh, to this matter. So very quickly, I'll just go to why apologetics. Why is it important? Number one, to break intellectual barriers. We, we as Christians, many times, were so wrapped up in this bubble that we just relegate, and not you, of course. Some of you already are doing better, but the, the average believer 
would rather just fall back to praying for the person. I pray, I pray for this person. I know I heard that this person doesn't believe in God anymore, but we'll pray for him. God will do something. The way God does something is by sending you. <laughs> do you understand? Many times you don't realize that we are the answer to the prayers we pray. When God, when someone has doubts in God, and it's intellectually, this is someone that traveled abroad, for example, got exposed to different belief systems, got enlightened, so to speak, got exposed to different worldviews, interacted with people, and starts having these intellectual issues. God wants you to be able to use this tool called apologetics to break down those barriers, to break down those walls. Maybe the person thinks the Bible is just an escape, an easy way to explain away things rather than being as technical as science is. But the truth is, science doesn't have all the answers, but the Bible claims to have the answers, so it's worth looking into. So at the end of the day, apologetics helps to break intellectual barriers so that it gets to a point where you're like, okay, you know what, this is rational, this is... And anyone who truly understands and studies the scriptures will see the intelligence and the wisdom of God. Um, Paul, when he was writing Romans, I believe, verse chapter 11, he just stopped and said, oh, how unsearchable are his ways, oh, wise God. Oh, wise God. He just gave a doxology because he was like, look at how everything is lining up from the prophecies of old to the revelation of Christ in the, in the gospel account till now when it's been revealed by his spirit. He stopped writing and said, oh, my goodness, God is wise. God only wise, immortal, immutable. Praise the name of Jesus. So people can see the wisdom of God. But the reason why we have this challenge is because the wisdom of the world is not the wisdom of the Lord, you know. But apologetics helps break those barriers. Number two, for effective witnessing. If you've been called, as you have been, to be God's lawyer, to be an ambassador of Christ, to be an evangelist in this day, you need this tool because you're meeting strangers, you're meeting people of different worldviews. There are about 3,000 religions in this world, plus and growing. 3,000 religions and worldviews, including atheism, agnosticism, all of this, inclusive. It means you have such a big task because anyone you meet could fall into any of these categories. So you have such a big responsibility. There is there's so little time and so much to know. But if you're going to be effective, you can't approach people and say, hey, hey, man, how are you? I want to tell you that Jesus loves you. How do I know Jesus exists? Eh, eh, sir? Sir? Jesus, how does, um, ah, because he exists now. See, the Bible says, no, I don't believe your Bible. Prove to me that Jesus exists. Ha, see this one now. Shabby, you've watched all those films that will say Jesus Christ. You've not seen it. Bro, really? Why would they say Jesus Christ if he exists? Well, why would they say Santa if Santa doesn't exist? Ha, good point, oh. You have a good point. Ha. I'll get back to you. I, but that was a good point. I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. Thanks, man. Thanks, bro. Take care. <laughs> if that's how your evangelism looks like, repent. You are doing a terrible job. Yes, I said it. You, you have a responsibility when it comes to apologetics to understand people, to be well-read and anticipate anybody's concerns. Do you understand? So apologetics is important and very useful for effective witnessing many times people actually have this opinion about believers that we're not intelligent we, we, we are foolish for having faith that's what they say 
we try not to think too much. We just want to, I believe in you and that's it. But when you prove them wrong, that the reason why you came to the conclusions that you came to are because you have searched and known for yourself. And it was even through knowledge that you came to those conclusions rather than just blind faith. Then it's more compelling. All right. Number three. It helps to build personal conviction. Now, the first two points that I've mentioned are more external. They're more towards another person, right? How you're able to convince someone, talk to someone. But apologetics helps you. Yes. Raise your hand. Tell me the truth. Let's be honest here. I mean, it's just us, right? Tell me the truth. How, I mean, in your entire life, have you ever been in a place where you actually doubted God, where you doubted God's love for you, where maybe you even doubted the gospel, you, you doubted your place in him. Can I just see your hand? Can I just see your hand? Maybe sometimes you ask those questions, you're like, ah, man, you see the killings, the massacres, the bombings, the terrorism, and you ask the question, ah, God, is God really, really good? Is he really there? How many of you, let me see, be honest. All right. Uh, and I see them. Some of you are actually very honest about this, and, and that's great. And that's why apologetics helps you. You are using it as a tool, not just for the world, but for your heart. Because the way you are, you are structured is you are, you are a product of your influences. When you see these things and experience these things, they have a way of getting to you. But if you've built conviction on the evidence of God and his truth, you've built your, your heart on those things, you've built conviction, unshakable conviction. I'm telling you, when the day of trouble comes, you will stand strong. Amen. You will stand strong. And that's why apologetics is for you. Number four, it preserves and builds the church. And I'll just read Acts chapter 18, verse 27 to 28. It says, when Apollos wanted to go, that's Acts, th- Acts 18, 27 to 28. I'll read it very quickly. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, The brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, it was a great help to those who by grace had believed. How was he a great help? Was he washing plates, sweeping the floor? What did he do? What did Apollos do when he arrived? How was he a great help to these people? It says, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debates. Proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Come on. Come on, people of God. This is what we're talking about. He was of great help to the church. He's edified, strengthened their beliefs. Gave them a reason to be able to stand against Jewish opponents when he faced them in open debate. So your your participation in apologetics can help strengthen other believers. Can help them see that for sure I can debate, I have something to offer, I can prove from scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Glory to God. And, and I wish I had time to explain how different it is with the audiences. The reason why he was proving from scriptures is because that was the source of prophecies, and he was talking to Jewish people who had the scriptures. They had the Tanakh, the old covenant writings, the Hebrew Bible. So he used that to expound Jesus as the Messiah. If you're talking to an audience of Gentiles or Greeks, like Paul did in Acts 17, the approach would be different. Paul, Paul even 
quoted some of their prophet, some of their poets, and used those things, used their own idol worship to bring its truth out. So that's why I'm talking about the, the art of apologetics is different, you know, from the science, but both are very important. But here we see that Apollos helped build the church, build their convictions by doing this very thing, by um, by facing his Jewish opponents. Praise the name of Jesus. Why else do we do apologetics? Because Jesus did apologetics. And I'll just read it in Luke chapter 7 from verse 19 to verse 22. Luke chapter 7 from verse 19 to verse 22. When Jesus came, uh, when the men came to Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was in prison. He was in despair. He was alone. He was worried. was concerned. Some doubt started to creep in while he was there. And, you know, he sent this man to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Are you the Messiah of the world? <laughs> or should we expect somebody else? This was the same man who announced, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He announced it publicly. Now he's sending disciples, are you really the one? No, tell me the truth. Tell me. You know, and, and, and this could be for personal reasons. This guy was locked up in prison. That's why I asked that question. Have you ever had doubts? And here, John the Baptist did. And at that very time, Jesus did something. He said, all right, you guys want to see? Come and see. And the Bible says, he cured many who had diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Glory to God. So here, Jesus did apologetics. He didn't say, if John is not, if he doesn't take time, if he doesn't take time, I will send Angel Gabriel one slap to correct him. Go back and tell him what I said. He could have done that. But Jesus, being who he was, being patient and kind in our doubts and our confusion, did this. He wanted to prove. He wanted to give evidence. And these things he did were characteristic of what the Messiah would be from the scriptures. And so he showed them, let me show you what the Messiah is capable of doing. And cured all these diseases and said, show him all these things that I've said. If it were today, they would have recorded it live, Instagram live. And then from the prison, he'll be seeing it. <laughs> but he would... <laughs> They went to tell him about it anyways, and his convictions came back. Do you understand? So Jesus himself, our Lord, did apologetics. He gave evidence. Um, biblical authors always did it, and I, I've read this before during our teaching series, but I'll go again very quickly. First John chapter 1 from verse 1 to 3. You know, First John 1 verse 1 to 3. When you see the way the biblical authors write, they write in a way that you know, shows they want to prove something. They've witnessed it, they've handled it, and then they want to prove to you beyond reasonable doubt that those things are true. So first John chapter one, from verse one to three, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, you know, the life appeared and then it goes on to say, we proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. So with the aim of persuading them to have fellowship with us, with, 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 with him as a believer. 
So he was, was talking to these people saying, we've seen these things, we've touched these things, and I want to proclaim them to you so that you have all the information, all the proof you need so that you may have fellowship with us. This is apologetics. Luke chapter 1 from verse 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us just as they were handled down to us by those from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything. So Luke was not just going to go by eyewitness accounts and what people have said. He was the one who did something about it. And I'm going to read a scripture to just uh, help you understand. It's in Acts chapter 17. All right. And this is what he said. Um, he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, almost excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. It's for persuasion. It's for conviction. He's in, he has investigated, he has checked that all the evidences match up. And now he wants to do it so that this person may know the certainty of the things that he has been taught. Do you understand? This is apologetics and this is your own disposition, must be your own disposition to apologetics as well. Praise the name of Jesus. First Corinthians 15 from verse 3 to 8. It says, and this is Paul. So I've done John. I've talked about how Luke did apologetics. Now Paul. Paul said in First Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. But what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. Have you realized that when they want to say it, it's, they talk of, of Christianity as a historic faith. It has roots. As I have received it, I am passing on to you. And I'm not just passing it on to you. It's passing through a sieve of investigation, of, of me also pushing further, investigating, clarifying, getting evidence, proof, before passing it along. And that's very important. I'll just take a break here. and Let's check out Acts chapter 17. There's something very powerful there that gets me every time. And this was something, you know... Um, Let's just go there very quickly. Acts chapter 17. A lot of people call this the scripture about the, the Berians, the Berian Christians. Um, but mind you, the funny thing is that before, let me, let's read it. Acts chapter 17 verse 13. I'll, I'll show you something very important there. Acts chapter 17 from verse 13. It says, but when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge, um, sorry, excuse me. Verse 11 is what I meant to say. From verse 10, let's start from verse 10. Verse 10, And the, the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Verse 11, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, that those things were so. So at this point, the Berians were not even Christians. It was by, first of all, receiving the word with all readiness, which should be our disposition. Even when you're listening to people of opposing views, you should readily listen so you can understand why they believe what they believe. But guess what? The next thing they did was they searched the scriptures daily. They received it and said, nice, great, but we're going to check this out. Before we believe anything, we're going to check this out. And it applies to you even when a preacher like myself in fact, let me tell you the truth. A good preacher would teach you how to identify and discern errors in any teaching, even if it's his own teaching. And that's what I'm doing. Even if I am wrong, I'm teaching you to identify how to know whether I'm wrong or not. 
And that's where there's safety. I'm secure enough to, to own up to my mistakes if I make mistakes. But I'm teaching you because you need to sharpen your discernment. And these guys went back. Even when you have a, ser- a Sunday sermon, receive it, honor the man of God, go back and check for yourself. Check for yourself. I remember those days in the university, whenever we had our tra- chapel services, I would go with my big study Bible. Everybody knew me. My big KJV study Bible. I will carry it in my hand, go with my notes. I used to have two notes, so I will carry the two notes and my Bible. Yes, I know. I know. Spirit Coco, yeah, that was me. And <laughs> I would go to service with one note, write down everything that he has said. Sometimes I go with the same notes, but I usually do two. Write down everything the chaplain or whoever is teaching has said. In my other book, I start to analyze. I start to go, is this accurate? What he said here, is it true? Is it true that, it, for example, a closed mouth is a closed destiny? Is that really true? What does that mean? And, and just go through all these things till I'm sure there was a time, and this was a practice I developed on, subconsciously, you know, and I'm thankful for some people who came into my life at that time, you know, would ask me questions and they would make me want to search for, for real. So remember one time there was a teaching going on and the person teaching, I won't say the person's name, very, very popular person. The person preached and said that, um, quoting Romans chapter 1 verse 16, and the teaching of the, of the message was mental intelligence, you know, for academic excellence. And this person read Romans 1 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to boost my mental intelligence. Immediately I heard this, this one, I could not control it. I stood up immediately. I said, no. And thankfully, I was... I came late for chapel service. I was at the very back seat. I narrowly escaped. So I was at the very back seat. This was my 200 level. I shouted. The ushers behind said, hey, they knew me. <laughs> so they <laughs> I said, Kenneth, what are you doing? Kenneth, sit, sit down, sit down. Kenneth, sit down. I was like, no, but it's wrong. No, the, good, the gospel is not, it's not for mental intelligence. It's, it's, it's for salvation. How can... I was so upset. I was so upset. And I feel this is where we're headed. Many of us are so indifferent now. You listen to teachings by five different ministers who have contradicted themselves over and over, and you're like, I was blessed. You are not, though. You are cursed. <laughs> you are very... <laughs> Pardon my, my expression there, but it's true. You were not grieved that you were deceived. You were lied to, but you, re- you just took it as truth because you didn't go back. You've not built discernment. Praise the name of Jesus. This is just, by the way, but something important to know. Don't be comfortable with falsehood. Don't be indifferent about falsehood. Have zero tolerance for it in your life. This will help your apologetic ministry. Amen. Oh, glory to God. Anyways, we're talking about Paul, right? 1 Corinthians 15. So he talked about how I have received... Uh, what I received, I passed on to you as for of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There's a reference. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he had appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, much of, most of which are still living. Why would he tell you that Jesus appeared to about 500 people at the same time and some of these people are, are still alive? First and foremost, he's telling you that it's impossible for 500 people to see the same thing at the same time and be hallucinating. 
or seeing a vision. It's not possible. It, it is, in fact, more of a miracle that Jesus was raised from the dead than for him to give a mass hallucination to 500 people. That's a bigger miracle. Do you understand? According to psychologists. So, at the end of the day, he's saying that these people, are, that's the first thing. Like, you can't have that mass hallucination. They saw it at the same time, saw Jesus at the same time. Second of all, many of them are still alive. So, if you want to do an investigation, I can give you their details. These are the people. Go talk to them. Some of them have slept, been with the Lord, but some of them are still alive. All right? So, this is apologetics. He's, he's, he's giving evidence for this truth. But I mean, uh, we, let me tell you where this all started from. It's an instruction that we see in First Peter. We, it's a common scripture. By now, you should know it by heart. First Peter chapter 3 from verse 15. This is the apologetics home base. And then we'll read Colossians chapter 4 from verse 5 to 6 as well. All right, all right. Are you learning something so far? Are you learning anything? I really hope you are. All right, let's go to... 1 Peter 3.15, and while we're doing that, open also to uh, Colossians chapter 4, from verse 5 to 6. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. It means, the word sanctify means to revere him, to put a sacred place in your heart for the Lord, so much so that you express it by being always ready to to give a defense to anyone who asks you of the hope that is in you, and you do it with meekness and fear. So that's what 1 Corinthians 3.15 is saying. saying if you revere God so much, if you are not indifferent, but God matters to you, and his truth matters to you, and this salvation you have received matters to you, then you will do something. You will always be ready to stand up to whoever asks you for the reason of your hope. You'll be ready to give them answers. Whether they are from this religion or that religion or this worldview, you will know how to answer them. You are ready. As you will get ready for an exam and you will study hard and you read hard and you do mock tests and you practice and you do all these things just so you are ready, you do the same thing for apologetics, for your spiritual devotion, for your evangelistical ministry. Praise the name of Jesus. Do you get it? So it's it's a readiness and a decision that you must make because God matters to you. Because you are sanctifying the Lord God in your heart in this way. That you can give people a reason for the hope. You can give them reasons. Don't just say, if I ask you, why are you a Christian? Don't just tell me, "Ah, my mom is a Christian. My daddy is a Christian. We are all nice people. We give to the poor. You, You don't understand it then. You don't understand that it's by grace through faith alone, not by your works. It means you don't understand it. And so how can you preach to someone else if you don't even understand why you are who you are? Does that make sense? So this is super important. First Peter 3, 15. And the end, it says we should do it with meekness and fear, not aggressively, not arrogantly. Not saying, can you see you're, you're foolish? You're very stupid. How can you not believe Jesus? You're, you're just foolish. That's the problem with you. Now there's a place for having a strong hand in evangelism but the approach we must always take is to do it in meekness and in reverence to respect people not to force things down their throat no we do it with them patiently till they come to the truth praise the name of jesus colossians chapter 4 from verse 5 to 6 glory to god oh i I already see someone's heart burning already you're seeing the importance of the work of apologetics 
that God will so mightily use you in this generation in the name of Jesus. Whoever you are, God will use you mightily in this generation. You will be a voice and a trumpet of the Lord in this generation, sounding the alarms and also presenting the truth. So says the Spirit of the Lord in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And he's going to confirm this with three dreams in the course of two months. He will confirm it with three dreams in the course of two months and two confirmations via prophecy. In the name of Jesus, you would have a strong passion to know, to be thirsty for knowledge uncontrollably. And you will know that this is the Lord commissioning you in Jesus' name. I don't know who that is for, but if it's for you, take it seriously. Receive it in Jesus' name. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Colossians chapter 4, from verse 5 to 6. Colossians chapter 4, from verse 5 to 6. Glory to Jesus. It says, walk in wisdom towards those who are without, who are outside. You know, when they say we are outside, anybody that says we are outside, you know they are unbelievers. <laughs> That's a joke. But it, it says here in New King James, um, those who are outside. But it's talking about those who are without, who are unbelievers. Walk in wisdom towards them. Be wise in your approach. In the art of apologetics, be wise. Redeeming the time. Then verse 6, let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one so he says let your speech always be with grace don't be judgmental be graceful in your approach understand where people are coming from understand that they are, they are sinners just like you were and you treat them with grace praise the name of jesus but also let it be seasoned with salt. When you put salt in things, what happens? Imagine you see a nice piece of chicken. It looks so glazed, so it looks marinated. You're, it just looks, mm, but there's no salt. N not, no single grain of salt. It, it, it doesn't, it's not appealing. You taste it once and you're like, I'm done. No, 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 I can't finish this. No, I'm not. I'm okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're a great cook, but no. <laughs> you won't do that because it's not compelling. It's not, it's not appealing to your senses or, you know, to you. It's not attractive. But when your speech is seasoned with salt, there is an attractiveness to it. There is a tastiness. It's more compelling. So this is another scripture to be first act, to first act wisely for people and also be able to know how you ought to answer them doing it with grace and with, with beautiful persuasion. Glory to God. All right. Then I'll just talk quickly about um, the scope of apologetics very quickly. And then we, we would uh, talk about uh, something very quickly. We talk about something that I'm sure everybody here wants to know for sure. I'm also excited to share it with you. Glory to God. So the scope of, of apologetics, there are six major areas that apologetics covers. All right, and, and that's why I said apologetics is so vast. For us to have an audacity conference, typically we should have at least five of these every year. Um, and by the grace of God, we'll get the chance to be just used style to use this month for that. The theme of this month at Vivify Ministries is asking for a friend. And this is where we, we really, really went uh, a bit deeper into the subject matter. So maybe that's what we'll do for now till we're ready to have more of these conferences physically and globally as well. To not just have it in Nigeria, but to have it in different places where we need to speak to people who uh, need the truth and we can 
stand head to head, toe to toe on these matters. All right. Praise the name of Jesus. Glory to God. So scope of apologetics. Number one, divinity. Divinity. This is where we talk about God and his character, his existence, you know, um, all things God and, and, and spiritual supreme being. That's divinity. Um, sometimes we talk about the spiritual realm as well in, in line with this. The spiritual realm, um, this is where pneumatology falls under. This is where um, soteriology falls under. That's the doctrine of salvation. Pneumatology is the doctrine of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Number two, we said divinity. Number two is authenticity. And we're talking about the biblical authenticity. It covers being able to vouch. And this is the scope of Christian apologetics, by the way, um, where you are able to give proof and evidence that the Bible is reliable, is true, it is um, inerrant, it's without errors. Um, so that's, that's authenticity. Then there's deity. All right, that's the third one, deity. This is where we can prove that in a case, how can you tell me Jesus is God? This is it. This is why he is God. This is what he said to say it internally. And maybe many times it's more of internal evidence to say that Jesus is God. All right. And also appealing to logic that only God could do these things. Right. Even when debating with a Muslim some time ago, I remember talking about how, you know, Jesus is God. And he was like, you can't tell me what thing did Jesus do that is God-like? I said, well, apart from rising from the dead, let me quote your own Quran that tells me that Jesus actually formed a bird from clay and breathed life into it and was able to, you know, fly away. You know, the bird became a living thing. He created it from just like how Adam was created and life was breathed into him. You know, the Quran also says that at two days old, Jesus was speaking to Mary, instructing her where she should go. I'm like, those are God-like characteristics that you people haven't even realized yet. Yes, you now excuse it and say he's a prophet, but that's fine. Let's not, let's not go into there. So at the end of the day, we need to prove, uh, we can prove his deity, his supremacy above all others through apologetics. Then we have reality. Reality, that's another scope. So we have divinity, authenticity, deity, reality. Reality is about the universe, how things came to be. Reality as we know what we see, how did it become? You can talk about the origin of the world through apologetics. Is it evolution? Is it creation? All right, then we have morality, which is how we live and act. So apologetics helps us decide for sure, just like we're going to do today in the gray areas, to talk and dive deeper about things concerning morality. So we know, is this how we should live? Is this what uh, is right? Where does morality come from? Is there a standard for mor morality or is it relative? Then we have number six, humanity. You know, and humanity... Um, this is what covers, and when you talk about humanity there, humanity, there are five consequential questions to ask. Five consequential questions of humanity that if the answer is this, the consequences are this. If the answer about humanity is this, these are the consequences. So, uh, for example, if man has, if man is finite in the sense that we came from dust, we return to dust, and that's the end, it means there is no eternity. There is no life after death. But if man truly is an in, made in the image of God, can live, has the potential to live beyond this life, then man has an eternal, you know, has eternity to look forward to, can live after death. You know, do you understand? So, 
those, those questions are consequential. There are five of them. We're talking about origin. Where did man come from? We're talking about identity. Who is man? Who are we? That's what the question asks. Number three, purpose. Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? You can call it purpose. You can call it meaning. Why are we here? What's our purpose? Number four is morality. How should we live? And number five is eternity or destiny. Where do we go from here? What happens after now? So when you talk of humanity, apologetics addresses these five consequential questions. All right, but one thing I will just say, I know I've hyped apologetics too much. One thing you must always remember is that apologetics is only just a means to an end. That's what it really is. It's a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. A lot of people get carried away with arguments and, and you know, back and forth, and they talk about these things. They want to show their knowledge, but they don't realize that it doesn't stop there. And the reason is because apologetics is only a means to an end, right? And the end is the salvation of mankind. What is the tool that we use to save people? It's the gospel. If I'm not ashamed of the gospel, let me quote this one the right way now. <laughs> Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the, is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. So it's the power of God to save mankind. The message of the gospel inherently is powerful to save someone. Logical reasoning cannot save a man. Only the gospel can. Do you hear what I said? Logical reasoning cannot save a man. Only the gospel can. That rhymes, by the way. <laughs> but yes, it's true. The gospel is the only tool to save a man. Not logical reasoning, not nice illustrations or those things help break those barriers so that when all is said and done no barriers exist bah, then you shoot the gospel and to enter and you understand that's the whole point of apologetics to pave the way to clear the forest so that the tractor can move in and so that you can start to plant those seeds and have them grow and germinate praise the name of jesus so that's it that's what the those weeds you can weed you can weed them out with apologetics and start to plant praise the name of jesus glory to god and, and that's the reason why reasoned arguments should be embraced by the church we shouldn't frown at it and say no we're not sent to argue we are supposed to just live our lifestyle how can you prove to anyone that jesus died and was raised to life for your justification by just living a nice life muslims live immoral life. There are also atheists who live a morally, morally upright life, who just know it's wrong to steal and lie. How can you, by those kind of lifestyle, know this message? The gospel is a message. It's what saves, not just lifestyle. Yes, people can see your good works and glorify the Lord, but it is the gospel being preached that saves anyone. Praise the name of Jesus. Glory to God. So we're going to talk about, we're going to dive into these gray areas very soon. Um, but before we do that, I want to just introduce something. I want to just let you know that in this day and age, morality has evolved. The world as we know it, morality has evolved. And it's not the first time. It's, it's, it keeps changing. There are two different sides on this, two different camps when it comes to morality. There are the absolutists and there are the relativists. The absolutists simply believe that there is absolute truth. There is a universal, unanimous truth that binds all of us together that we can know for sure this is wrong, whether in Jamaica or Nigeria or the USA, it's wrong everywhere. 
and it can be held as true by everyone. But the, uh, but the relativists, on the other hand, believe that truth depends on you. Your truth, have you heard people say that? That's your truth, but this is my truth. You know, yeah, in, same way in the Bible, that's your rev- revelation. I mean, same way in Christianity, I beg your pardon. That's your own rev, your spiritual revelation. This is my own, my own revelation I got. But your revelation, you, you are quoting Psalm 121 where it says, you know, the Lord shall be a shade upon your right. And you say, this is my revelation. When I shade in my objective questions, as I shade option A and B and C, God is a shade upon my right hand. So my right hand, I know I'm a left-handed person, but I'll use my right hand and God will be a shade. Glory to God. That's your own revelation. You're in trouble. And the other person is telling you, no, it means God will be a protector. That's why he said after that, you know, he'll protect your going out and your coming in. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. That's protection. But you, as this is my own truth. You can't afford to do that. There's an illustration that I love so much about the number six and the number nine. You know, you put the number six on the floor. Imagine it's, uh, it's one of, there's a, uh, there are three numbers put on the floor. And they are the code to, to um, deactivate a missile launch that's coming to destroy Nigeria from the U.S. Just think, that's not going to happen. I hope this doesn't cause fights, but this is an, <laughs> just an example. There are missiles about to be launched from the U.S. to Nigeria, and you have three buttons, um, three numbers, I beg your pardon. You have three, sorry, you have four, you have one, and you have something, sorry, no, you have six, you have six and you have nine. You have six, six, nine. These are the codes. The question is, how do you know? And they're not together. They're just on the floor, pieces of paper. But you see a six, you see a six, you see another nine. The question is, how do you know whether it's a six or a nine? There's no line to show where the base is. Normally, you should show where the base is. But it's just the number in itself. How do you know if it's a six or a nine? Like, how can you tell? If you say, it's my truth, what I believe is what it is, oh boy, that's the end. Because of you, the whole country is gone. Because you are, it's your truth. <laughs> the, the real person, the, someone who is objective enough, will say, you know what, I'm not the one who put this number here. So I'd rather go to the source of this, the person who puts it here, and find out from them what this number is. And a lot of people don't do that today. Relativists want to go about their own life their own way, rather than asking the originator of morality, rather than going to the source of morality to find out for sure whether this is right or wrong. So relativists are the ones who want to go about, they want to live in undue freedom, you know, and there was an interview that even went so viral by a man called Matt Walsh, and he, um, he was in politically more Republican than Democrats, not Democratic, he's Republican, and Republicans um, are more closely evangelical in their belief system, their political views where they abolish abortion and same-sex marriage and all those things. They're more conservative. Those in Democrats in the U.S. are, the Democrats are more liberal, right? So he was doing an interview because he, he was asking people, what is a woman? That was the name of this interview, and you can check it out. It's a very good interview. Um, what is a woman? He asked them. And these people could not give an answer. Something that should have been as easy and universally you know, defined has become a problem because if you say a woman is a woman, <laughs> sorry to say that, but a, a woman is a human that consists of 
that has mammary glands as you know it's breasts and has a curved shape and has this and has that then what happens to men who want to identify as women trans women who don't have those things does it make them not do you understand so it's a it's it's a culture where these definitions can change where someone can choose to be a man today gender fluidity tomorrow be a woman and next day non-binary i don't even want to be identified by any of these things that's the world you live in and it's our responsibility to shine the light in these gray areas to just let everyone know that see the truth is the truth there can be a universally binding truth for everyone and that's what god did he instituted truth you know, for, you know, Jesus himself was the source of truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, I am the life. Truth should be absolute. It shouldn't be dependent on how we feel. It should be dependent on who, um, who or invented this thing, um, wanted this thing to be. If God created us, he alone can define what truth is for us. You understand what I'm saying? Glory to God. Praise the name of Jesus. All right, so very quickly before we go into, um, just to round up this first session, um, before we go into the next session, I want to just talk a bit about biblical authenticity. And I don't, I ne don't nearly have enough time to do this, but uh, I'll just rush it as, as quickly as I can. Praise the name of Jesus. Would you like to know that um, how biblical, how authentic the Bible is? Right, so we're just going to investigate the Bible just a little bit. And when it comes to, <coughs> excuse me, when it comes to investigating the scriptures, um, there are some tests that we need to put in place, just like any other literary material. Um, if you want to validate that the book that so-so and so person wrote is valid, is authentic, there are three tests, major tests that you must put it through, that when it comes out of this test, you can say, oh, okay, no, man these guys are authentic and that's what we're going to do there are three tests number one the bibliography the the writing process the translation process the copying process that's bibliography so the reason why bibliography is an important test it's possible that you know how they do all these abba materials now that you know you you see one prison break might have maybe five seasons or i don't know how many seasons but you know it's meant to have five seasons and then all these people on the roadside are selling season 21. And you're like, ah-ah, uh -uh, from where? <laughs> you know, you know there's, there's perversion, there's piracy, there's, um, you know, people adding, subtracting. So you have to pass it through this test to be sure that it was preserved from its pure form, from when it was first written to how it is now. That's what bibliography is all about. And I'll just talk more about some Bible versions and translations and give you some facts. The second test is internal coherence internal coherence or internal evidence that everything in that book especially because it is non-fiction um, because it's non-fiction it means it involves real people real places real events that means that it must be valid it must first flow there must there must be um, an intertwining in each of it. it must be coherent it must be clear must be concise it must make sense internally and then when you fact check externally it must add up it must be it must add up you know in different measures all right so we're just going to go into that bibliography so 
when it, when it comes to bibliography, just to give you an idea of how this worked, all right, um, in those days, right now it's easy to copy and print. You usually just scan a document. If you want one or more of one document, what do you do? You put it in a scanner, scan it, and then you print. Or you just put it in a photocopier and make several copies. Guess what? Printers and photocopiers were not invented in those days. And so how they would transfer this information and make copies is literally by writing. Imagine people writing the scriptures in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Greek, over and over and over to make numerous copies. That's what happened. That's what we call scribes. You know, in the, in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, you had Pharisees, Sadducees, you had scribes. The scribes were the ones who would copy, who would write and help transfer the knowledge of not just the biblical writings, but also some of their high priests and all of that. So this is how it was done. No printers, no photocopiers. So it makes sense that if you need to first make a validation by the number of manuscripts made and when the earliest copy was made, you also need to check further that there were no errors, right? That when it passes through an error check, there's minimal discrepancies to be sure that the information has not been tampered with. All right, so I'll just give you some very quick facts to know if the Bible was rightly copied. But here's one thing. Let me start with the Old Testament. There is something called the Old Testament, the books from Genesis to Malachi, by the way. Um, there's something called the Aleppo Codex, which is, um, there are two of them. There's the Aleppo Codex and there's the Leningrad Codex. The Aleppo Codex was written in 920 um, CE. Um, and the Leningrad Codex was in 1008 CE. That's AD. That's what we call AD um, usually. You know, they, they actually changed BC and AD to BCE and CE because of the religious connotations. BC meant before Christ, and AD meant Anoi Domini, which is the announcement of our Lord, right? Or the day of our Lord. Um, so. People, of course, wouldn't have it. Why are we referencing time by one man called Jesus Christ? So they changed it to BCE and CE. That's just extra information. So um, this were one of some of the oldest known manuscripts of the Tanakh in, in Hebrew. All right, so it's very old, very old uh, codex. But we even have older. Um, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls have been dated as long as 250 BC. There are about 800 scrolls, and, and, but they were recently discovered in 1947. These scrolls had been preserved, but were discovered in 1947. But when you do the tests, when you check the, the carbon dating, it dates back to 250 BC. It was written, it was between that and AD 50. So um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are very helpful uh, to just let us know that it, it's old, they have been there for long, and they were copied severally till we've discovered them now. <coughs> then you have um, the Isaiah manuscripts, the entire Isaiah manuscripts. It dates back to 75 BC, um, you know, and the earliest copy, the earliest existing copy of it, uh, it was in 1008 to uh, 1008 BC to 9 AD. Um, then we have the silver amulet. That was another source of the Old Testament writings as early as 7th century BC, 700 BC, that um, 7th century BC. It's, it's about 2,600 years old. 
And the reason why it survived a long time is because it was inscribed on silver plates. It was inscribed on silver plates, so the writings were not on paper, so it could survive that longer time. All right. So these are just a few things uh, about the Old Testament. So it's, it's old, it's been copied, and what they found out is that in the copyings, there's only 95% um, um, discrepancy. There's only 5% discrepancies. Uh, and that 5% margin of error is because of punctuation and um, the different types of manuscripts that were used. And I wish I had time to explain it. That's where the differences came with King James, NIV. I know when you read some of these books, even ESV, you see that a whole verse or a whole combination of verses were missing. It was because of the manuscripts that were used to translate them. So the NIV, just so in case you didn't know this, was translated from an older manuscript than KJV. KJV uses a newer copy of the manuscripts to translate into English. That's why some places in NIV are not there. Do you understand? Sometimes the writers add these details um, not to pervert the truth, but to make it make logical sense. So um, uh, let me just pause here and digress a bit so you understand. The different types of translations. There is the word-for-word tra word transla translation. There's the thought-for-thought thought translation. The word-for-word, word, when you directly translate from Hebrew to English, because the Hebrew language has a wider vocabulary than English, uh, when you're translating, it's hard to get the most accurate words. When you, if, you, if you transcribe and translate word-for-word, word, what you realize is, ha, this thing does not make sense. Because the word-for-word word translation, because you can't find the equivalent of that exact word in English, you are stuck. But the thought-for-thought thought helps, and, and KJV is actually a mix of both. People don't know. It's a mix of both, but it tends more to the word-for-word word side. So when, you, when, you, when the writer and the transcribers are, are trying, the translators, I beg your pardon, are translating to English, and you say, he goest ascended, for example, and you're like, hmm, no, he went to this place and ascended. So you start to see some, some words that in italics, even in, in KJV, those words were not in the original manuscript, but because the, the translators wanted to make sense when you read it in English, they added those things there. Do you understand? So the NIV is more on the thought for thought, NLT, thought for thought. Message is, is very thought, thoughtful. <laughs> Praise the name of Jesus. So that's how they, they copied these things. But they found out that the discrepancies between these manuscripts were just 5% error, punctuation, and just a little bit of additions for um, clarity. They call these things translation philosophies, by the way. But I won't bore you with those details. So that's about the Old Testament. When you talk about the New Testament, when they benchmarked the New Testament writings with other writings in that time, right, historical books that were compared, that were popular in those days, and, and you know, they didn't have photocopiers, so people wrote it. When they realized, um, when they compared the New Testament with these other um, books and writings, they found something very important. One principle is that the, the number of copies a material has, the more re reliable it is. So if you just have one or two copies of the same thing, it's okay, but it's not so reliable. But if you have hundreds and thousands of copies of the same thing and they are accurate 95%, then you have a very good thing going on for you. So they compared it with 
Plato's writings with Roman Caesar, um, the Emperor Caesar, with Tacitus, with Sophisys, and some of their writings, right? Um, so the only one that comes close to the New Testament is the Iliad by a Greek writer, Homer. And he had 643 manuscripts that were copied. 643 manuscripts. And it was within the period of 500 years. All right, so aside from the number of copies, the amount of time, the time span also matters. If it's a long period of time from the actual events, it's suspect. Why so long a time before it was copied? Why did they wait so long? Um, but here we see that the New Testament, which was written between uh, 40 to 100 AD, has 24,000 plus manuscripts. 24,000. The only one that comes close is, is Homer's Iliad, one, um, 643. This was copied 24,000 times within the span of 8 to 30 years. Hmm. Come on. There is very, and this is why a lot of historians, those who understand bibliographers, um, who understand the, the workings of books, know that this is a serious thing. They can't deny how well written the New Testament is. The only difference and, and the questions that arise is, okay, should this book have been included in the canon of scripture, right? Should, you know, and I wish we had time to talk about the Apocrypha. Maybe if we do, I'll squeeze it in a bit. But these are the things that they discuss and they ask questions about, you know. Um, should this, but never would they say that the New Testament is in error because it's the most accurately copied book of history. Praise the name of Jesus. So that's bibliography. It's all about translation, tra um, transference of manuscripts and all of that. The second one is internal evidence internal evidence so you have to ask questions like does the information correspond does it contradict is it coherent right so i'll just give you first and foremost in the arrangement the bible has been seen to be accurate the 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 chronological arrangement from genesis till you know revelation it seems just about right and of course the dates of the writings might vary like the book of job which is has been said to have been written even before the book of Genesis was written. By the end of the day, you don't want to start the book with Job when, when there's Genesis that says in the beginning. You understand? So chronologically, it makes sense. It's, it's well written, well compiled. But when you talk about its internal evidence, you, you want to talk about prophecies. So there's prophetic fulfillments. The first one I talked about was chronological arrangement. Second one is the prophetic fulfillments. And there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that were declared, and a lot of them have been fulfilled. In fact, Jesus alone fulfilled 44 of those prophecies. And I'm, going to read, I'm just going to read a few to you, but the odds of, of having all these prophecies fulfilled the, the way they were fulfilled, it's, it's 1 in 10 raised to power 17. Literally, 1 in 10 raised to power 17 probability that one person could fulfill all these prophecies in those exact same ways. 500 years, 500 plus years after they were given, 500 to, if you want to count Genesis, maybe a thousand years as well. From when they were given, that one man fulfills all these ones. Come on, from different prophets. Come on, what are the chances? And the normal prophecies that we can see that are non-messianical are 
the prophecy that God gave to Abraham that the Israelites will be captured, they will be enslaved, but after so 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 time they'll be released. Same thing with Babylon, the Israelites who were in Babylon for exile, that they'll be released after 70 years. These things came to pass. Many other prophecies that were given came to pass. All right. So at the end of the day, these things are huge. But let me just read a couple of these um, evidences to you, if I can just quickly do that. Uh, Praise the name of Jesus. Are you learning something so far? So when you talk about the Messiah, the Messiah will be born of a woman. You see... Genesis 3.15, talk about it. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. The Messiah will be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. Messiah will come from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12, verse 3. Genesis 22, verse 18 says that the Messiah will be a descendant of Isaac. He'll be a descendant of Jacob, a descendant from the tribe of Judah. That's Genesis 49.10. He'll be heir to King David's throne. His throne will be eternal. He'll be, eternal. He'll be called Emmanuel. Um, he will stay in Egypt. He will, uh, a messenger will prepare the way for him. So th- this, these things are so spot on. So spot on. I wish I had time, but I don't, sadly. But you just do your research and, and check to see the prophecies that Jesus alone fulfilled. So internal coherence makes sense. Then we have to ask, is the information we see in scriptures contradictory or not? Is it contradictory? I'll give you two examples um, because this is part of it. If it contradicts, then we can't, we can't trust this material. That's one of the tests that is very important for the Bible to pass through, for it to be, to be decided upon as authentic. Praise the name of Jesus. So, um, the death of Judas Iscariot. So, the account in Matthew 27 verse 5 tells us something very interesting, right? Um, it says that Judas Iscariot died by hanging. That's Matthew 27, verse 5. He died by hanging. He, ha- he hung himself, committed suicide, and died, right? Um, but you see in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, a different description. Acts 18 is more gory, more detailed. And that's typical of Luke, by the way. When you see the writings of Luke, and I'm going to show you another example. Luke is more, who, wrote, he, who also wrote the book of Acts, he's more eloquent, you know, very much loquacious and detailed in his writings. So uh, Acts 1.18 said that, you know, Judas bought a field and he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. That was so gory and unnecessary detail. My, it necessary, but man, TMI, too much information, right? Um, but who do we believe? Matthew tells us he was hung on, on a tree branch. And Luke is telling us, no, he fell headlong and his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Who do we believe? Now, it's a question of contradiction or complementation. Is it complementary information? Additional information. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these are compilations of eyewitness accounts. All right. So while I might stand from this point and see a car hit someone, right, and say, this is what happened. The car hits this person. Another person from another angle can say, you know, no, the person hit the car. The coroner, when he examines the person's body, can say there was impact that's possibly given by a moving vehicle 
on impact and crushed this and he crushed his ribs crushed his lungs his lungs said it's that's more detailed do you understand so is it complementary or is it contradictory um when you read further you when you study it you realize that the most likely case and luke's account gives a detail of being hung on, on a tree branch but that tree was on a cliff and after a while after something has hung and the weight distribution on the branch is so uneven as has been there for a long time the, it's going to give way eventually and if you are on a on a cliff hung there you'll fall and by the time your tissues and organs have dissolved it makes the body the skin cells and the body more loose and likely to open and burst off when you make impact with the floor so that is exactly what happened he was hung on a tree branch on a cliff and when the branch gave way he fell uh, headlong and that happened tragic but that's what happened then you see another account um and you just see this dichotomy between matthew and luke in this way where matthew is very brief goes straight to the point but luke you know talks more about it you know and that helps matthew matthew 26 verse 67 to 68 this is during uh the, the just prior to the nailing of jesus on the cross verse 67 it says then they spat in his face matthew 26 67 then they spat in his face and beat him and others struck him with the palm of their hands verse 68 saying prophesy to us christ who is the one who struck you hmm does that make sense so they were mocking him and they spat in his face beat him slapped him oh yeah prophesy who is the person that did it does that make sense why does he need to prophesy if i mean if it's Tunde that slapped me, it's Tunde. If it's Bello, it's Bello. Why do I need to prophesy? I saw you. Unless maybe he didn't see. But how can we know? Luke documents it, thankfully. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now the man who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Verse 64. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy! Who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously, blasphemously spoke against. But look at it. It said, and having blindfolded him. So that's where it came from. That's why they asked him to prophesy. Because he was blindfolded. He couldn't see. So prophesy, prophet. Tell us who it is that slapped you. Do you understand? So the Bible is not. And there are many more contra seemingly contradictions in the scriptures. Like faith without works is dead. I use, you know, Paul is saying uh, it's by faith without works that you get saved. And James is saying, but faith without works is dead. That Abraham was justified by his works. That sounds like a contradiction until you understand the context. That James is saying, look, you can't tell me you believe in something and your actions don't show it. If you tell me you believe you can fly and you're just sitting down watching pop eating popcorn, watching Netflix, I don't believe you. I want to see you climb something. Show me. Prove to me. Superman, Superman, show me. That's why faith without works is dead. Do you understand? So uh, many people are just quick to decide that the Bible is, has errors and contradictions because they haven't taken the time to really, really examine and study for themselves. So this is internal evidence. Then I'll talk quickly on, on external evidence. External evidence. Praise the name of Jesus. So do, are there other historical materials that can confirm historical writings, um, that can confirm what the scriptures say and we can pass them through things so there's is there supporting evidence 
from non-Christian historians and authors. That's the first one. Is there evidence from other people who can tell us some of the events that happened in the Bible, if they actually happened? Um, that's, that's historical evidence, to summarize. Then there is archaeological um, evidence. Archaeological evidence. Can you check from archaeology, from fossils, that these things did exist? Then there's scientific evidence, right? Are there things in the Bible that prove what science has now come to believe or come to you know, uh, portray? So that is external evidence. For historical, um, we have histor um, historical writers, historians like Josephus, who was a Jew. You have Pliny the Young. You have Tacitus. You have the Jewish Talibot. These were historical writers and writings that talked about a man in, Nazar in Nazarene, a Nazarene who lived a virtuous life, who was, some people called him a sorcerer, magician, or a great teacher. He was crucified in Palestine under the Roman government by the hands of Pilate. He was believed to have been raised from dead. These are the things that these historians, who were not even believers, accounted for. So these are non-biblical sources that historically mentioned that this happened sometime in history. Do you understand? There is historical evidence. Um, archaeological evidence, there, there's so much, but there's no archaeological discovery that has ever contradicted the writings of the Bible. In fact, every single place recorded in the Bible, every single one, can be found today in the world. Either except maybe the name has changed it's now a more modern name you know where sinai now is not uh it's sinai but it's it's where you know the israelites are fighting the palestinians for now um you talk about uh all this cilicia which is in turkey all these places that were old names um now we see that modernly they are different you know they're in a different territory there's no country called corinth or Galatia, they're now, you know, in Asia, under different countries. So things have changed, but these were places that actually did exist. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, now, archaeological findings are telling us that they have found residues of um, some gravestones of some of the early saints. Um, people have claimed to have found Noah's Ark. New discoveries are coming up every day, and while I'm not so moved by that, it helps to know that these events, these places actually did exist sometime in history. All right, so um, by carbon dating and all those things they do, they're finding these things. Scientifically, there are some things that the Bible has said that, you know, science actually started to catch up with just recently. So I'll just give you a couple of those. I'll just mention them to you as quickly as I can. So the Bible actually denotes that the earth is spherical. While scientists long ago have said the earth is flat, Isaiah 40, 40 verse 22 says that the earth is a sphere. Um, Jeremiah in, in his prophecy in chapter 33 verse 22, Jeremiah 33 22 says that there are innumerable stars, you know. And science then said there are only 1,100 stars. Uh, but now they've come to realize that no, stars are innumerable. Um, Job was one that said in Job 28:35 that air has weight. But before, science said air is weightless. But now they believe that air has mass, right? Um, First Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the differences in stars, that each star is different. The glory of one star is different to the glory of another star. 
but um, science then used to say that stars were the same but now they believe each star is different there are many other things that light moves light actually travels job 38 19 um free float of earth in space job 26 verse 7 wind blows in cyclones ecclesiastes 1 verse 6 blood is the source of life leviticus 17 verse 11 um Creation made of invisible elements, Hebrews 11, verse 3. And science says that, yes, creation is made of invisible elements, which is atoms. Well, uh, oceans contains springs, you know. Yeah, so these are just things that it came up, um, that science only caught up to realize that was true. You know, the Bible says, Bible days, David had made written psalms about planets, you, you, you know, there are a lot of writings in Job that talked about gravity, which only recently that Isaac Newton discovered, you know. So these, these are things that the Bible has once the writers have said, and these are not... So anyone who truly understands and studies the scriptures will see that we are not anti-science. We just believe we have more to offer than science does. And it, not that science is not useful. Don't get me wrong. Science is very useful in many ways. But science doesn't have all the answers, do you understand? Especially when it comes to origin. Don't be bamboozled by theories um, that sound wise and intelligent. If you look deep into evolution and its theory, you realize it's a very dumb idea. And I wish I had time to spend about it, but I don't. Evolution is not right. There's no single example to prove the evolutionary pro process. Some people said, oh, there were, you know, Darwin's finches, the birds, that the beaks bent. The, um, were straight, but after a couple years, the beaks bent. Um, the, the beaks bent, I beg your pardon. And how do you call that evolution? That's called adaptation. It adapted to different climates. It changed, just like polar bears, their, their fur turns white in white areas, in cold winter land areas. Doesn't mean that they evolved, right? Evolution is a fish turning into a dog. That's what you call change of species, and we don't have an example. Darwin didn't live long enough, sadly, to, exam to, to observe any of those things because it takes one million plus years to examine those things, and he has not lived up to that. So evolution in itself, that's why it's still a theory to today. It's not, it's not a law. It's a theory, and to stay that way because it's a fallible theory. Praise God. <laughs> Amen. So there's scientific evidence for the Bible. Um, is the Bible from God? Yes, we see 2 Timothy 3.16 tell us the Bible is inspired by God. Um, 2 Peter 1 verse 21 talks about it. 1 Corinthians 14.37, 2 Peter 3.26. I'm sorry I'm rushing because of time. But when you look at it in the holistic script, you know, when you look at it holistically, people say, you know, the, the Bible is just man's imagination. It's an invention of man. But when you see the structure of the Bible, you can't come to that conclusion. You have 66 books who are, that were written over by over 40 authors. 66 books by 40 authors for, in different languages, in three different continents, over the span of 1,600 years, these things were written for. And they are coherent. One doesn't contradict the other. There is an easy flow. Come on, open your eyes and see the truth. This was no invention of man. This was inspiration of God. Praise the name of Jesus. It was given by the inspiration of God to 40 strangers over the course of 1,600 years, almost two millennia. 
people of different nationalities and backgrounds wrote this, put it together. Praise the name of Jesus. The Bible is God's idea and it is authentic. If we pass it through the bibliography, internal evidence and external evidence test, it comes out strong. It comes out successful. Praise the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I don't have time to talk about the Apocrypha, but one thing, the Apocrypha talks about the books, um, talks about the books that um, were also devotional books, but were not just authority um, and inspired by the Spirit. So those are the books, but I don't have time to talk about it. But like I said, when you look at the holistic um, view of the scriptures, what you realize is that these books were spiritually inspired. When you see someone who was not in the beginning, say in the beginning, God did this and did that. And accounts, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, Exodus, um, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers. He wrote these books while not even being there for most of it. That's crazy, right? And those things happen. There are records that talk about these people that lived, the places that were existent. So there's just a lot to tell you that the Bible was inspired. But what is the purpose of the Bible? John 5, 39 talks about it. It says you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. Um, But these are they that testify of me. So at the end of the day, from Genesis till Revelation, There is a testimony of Christ that is littered all across. It's a journey. There's a central point, central focus, center point. It's a synergy, which is Jesus. He is the focus of the scriptures. From when it was announced, the Protevangelion in in Genesis chapter 3, when it was announced that, you know, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. When it was further announced that Abraham, through his seed, you know, the world will be blessed. All nations of the world will be blessed. Still talking about Jesus. Still, when we saw Jesus come on the scene, after all the prophecies and ceremonial laws, everything did testify of Jesus. That was the purpose of what we see, to reveal Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. And I hope that with these, you've learned something about the authenticity of the Bible. And now you can go have a conversation with someone and prove to them that, look, the Bible is not just some writing of fiction. It's real. It happened. It's, it's, it's authentic. It passes through the 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 authenticity checks and it it comes out successful you can't believe it tell me another material that does that tell me another book that comes out successful in that way you can't you really can't praise the name of jesus i am super confident that this has been a blessing to you keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of god for your life stick around for more god bless you i love you